Well, today we are blessed to have Rod May with us. He's one of the pastors of Calvary Bible Church, our sending church. And Rod graciously agreed to uh, preach the word for us this Sunday. And so thank you, brother. We appreciate the ministry of the church you helped lead and, and your ministry in particular today. So please come. Well, the saints of Calvary Bible Church send their greetings, and uh, they are thrilled every time uh, we hear reports of the good work that's going on here and how the grace of God uh, is growing amongst you. So uh, it is my privilege and, and blessing for me to be with you. And on a personal note before I begin, thank you for going and encouraging Dexter and Jesse this summer. Uh, we appreciate that as well. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your grace. Thank you that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you are saving. You are bringing glory to your name by taking your enemies and making them your children. We stand amazed at your great grace that brings to life, that clothes us with power and leads us to heaven. And I ask you now, Father, for your grace as we turn to your word. We need your grace. I need it to speak rightly. We all need it to hear well. Would you be glorified in the unfolding of your word? Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. Incline our ears to your word, to your great promises. We pray in the name of our great Savior and God, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, today is about grace. It's about the grace of God that has been shown to us in Christ. The word grace is everywhere, and rightly so, in the church and in Christianity abroad. Ask a friend to list some attributes about God, and grace will be mentioned early in the list. Ask someone what grace means. And you might hear one of these bite-sized definitions. God's riches at Christ's expense, a wonderful little acronym. Uh, getting what you don't deserve, as opposed to uh, not getting what you do deserve. Or God's unmerited favor, or his unmerited assistance. The scripture is replete uh, with the descriptions of grace for us. John 1.14 describes Jesus as full of grace and truth. Acts 6.8 describes Stephen as full of grace and power. Ephesians 2 tells us in verse 5 that by grace you have been saved. And again in verses 7 and 8 that God desires to show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Paul uses the word grace over 80 times and includes it in almost all of his greetings and his sign-offs in his letters. And in Titus, where we'll be today and where I encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bible, it's no different. Paul begins 
and ends with grace. Titus 1.4, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. And then to the very end of the book of, of Titus, chapter 3, verse 15, all who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Now, our text for today is right smack dab in the middle of Titus, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. And it's my desire today that you would be strengthened and encouraged by this passage as we see God's grace described here. Maybe in ways that you've not considered. Regardless of where you are right now, I pray that you'll come away astounded at God's amazing grace. So with that, would you please stand with me as we read God's word? Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This passage puts the richness of God's grace on display in three different ways, like facets of a gemstone that you would turn and see things come into view as you move it around in the light. And as we work through this passage, we will see God's grace is a saving grace, God's grace is a sanctifying grace, and God's grace is a securing grace. But since we have parachuted right into the middle of Titus, uh, it would serve us well to spend a little time to catch up on the background and the setting of this letter, as well as the context of this passage. So Titus had been a companion and a co-worker with Paul. In Galatians 2, uh, he's listed as accompanying Paul to what we believe was the Jerusalem Council. Uh, he is mentioned and commended several times in 2 Corinthians as a faithful and careful brother, and he was instrumental in encouraging the Corinthian brothers. In fact, in, Corinth in 2 Corinthians 8.16, Paul thanks God for having, quote, put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care that Paul had for the church. And now Titus is on Crete, which is an island in the middle of the Mediterranean. Tough gig. Um, in the same way that Paul had left Timothy in Ephesus to continue the work that they had begun together, Paul, has, it seems, has left Titus on Crete to preach the gospel, to establish the churches, after which uh, Paul, or Titus continues this work. And the book that we have now uh, before us is a letter from Paul to Titus. It appears after this with instructions and encouragement. We don't have a date on it, but most would place this letter along with First and, Timoth and Second Timothy after the end of Acts. Um, 
And so this would be after Paul's first imprisonment. The presumption is that uh, Paul continued his missionary work in Macedonia and perhaps in Crete during this time. And Paul writes this letter as a free man because he tells Titus, come to Nicopolis and, and be with me as soon as you can. And so in terms of context, Titus chapter 1 verse 5, Paul reminds Titus why he left him on Crete. And that is to put what remained into order and to appoint elders in every city as I have directed you. In the remainder of Titus chapter 1, Paul outlines the qualifications for these elders that Titus is to uh, identify and to appoint. And then he describes the false teachers on Crete in verses 10 to 16 in exceptionally strong terms and summarizing that in verse 16, chapter 1, verse 16, of those who profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Now in chapter 2, Paul then calls Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine and that follows up with specific instructions for older men, older women, younger men, younger women, and Titus himself and for slaves. And in this section, Titus 2, 1 to 10, Paul lays out precisely what he means for Titus to teach and what these things are that accord with sound doctrine. And so something to note here as we approach our own text is how Paul is drawing very clear line of connection between belief and behavior and between doctrine and deeds. Let me show you three examples. We've covered, we've walked right through them already. In chapter 2, verse 1, we've already noted that Paul's instructions are for things that accord with or are in proper alignment with, in tune with, or complement sound doctrine. Second, in chapter 2, verse 5, Paul exhorts older women to teach younger women, quote, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. Note this, that the word of God may not be reviled. This is, this is Paul's reason for giving this instruction. So think with me about Paul's stated objective. Surely, Paul understands and agrees that a God-ordered household benefits everyone and pleases the Lord. Surely Paul also knows that a God-ordered household is glorifying to God as his people live in obedience. And we would agree those are good things. But notice that neither of those are Paul's specific objective in giving this instruction. Instead, his objective for this training is that the word of God would not be reviled. That is, that the onlooking world in Crete wouldn't see in this instance younger women who profess to follow Christ with their mouths but then deny him with their lives. And what would the world say? What would the rest of Crete say? Yeah, nice platitudes you have, Titus. So they all sound nice, but you're living the exact same way we are. It makes no difference whatsoever in a life. Third example. Chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 connect the dots for Titus and for us with instructions to slaves 
to be submissive to their own masters in everything, well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that, here's his purpose, that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Here again, Paul's target is not primarily the God-ordered workplace, though that's good, but it's the reputation of the Word of God, here referred to as adorning the doctrine of God, or by a slave's life and behavior, drawing attention to and making even more beautiful the gospel. This connection between belief and behavior, between doctrine and deeds, will continue to remain important in our text for today, which is where we have now arrived after a 12-minute introduction. Thank you for your patience. So as we roll up to the front door of this text, we immediately encounter that little word, for. And for is a road sign telling us that what we're about to read is the explanation for what we have just read. That's why we spent some time in verses 1 to 10 and these specific instructions. We've just read this, all these instructions from Paul to Titus, and now he's going to say, for something is true. And it's the explanation for why the instructions exist. Think of it this way, grand old hymn, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. You could say the same thing this way, I can face tomorrow for he lives because he lives. So what we're going to see uh, is the explanation for those 10 verses, the reason and the logic behind it, and it's all about God's amazing grace. God's grace that through Christ saves, equips, and keeps his own to the end. So that puts a bow on our context and gets us into verse 11. Again, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Paul speaks here of the appearing of God's grace. This is the first of three uses of this word appearing in Titus. Here, the grace of God has appeared. Just two verses later, uh, it is that we are waiting for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And in Titus 3, 4, Paul speaks of when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. So taken together, Paul is writing here in 2.11 of something far more concrete than just an amorphous and general um, unmerited assistance of God. He is speaking of the appearing of Jesus when he speaks of the appearing of the grace of God. This is Jesus in his first advent, his earthly ministry, his incarnation. I mentioned John 1.14 earlier, but turn there with me to see more. John 1.14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then on to verse 16. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
So full of grace and truth, grace upon grace, grace came through Jesus. John is clear, and back here in Titus 2, Paul is as well. In Christ, the grace of God appeared, becoming undeniably manifest. And this grace, Christ, appeared with purpose, the first of which was to bring salvation. Other scriptures concur. John 3.17 tells us that God sent his Son into the world in order that the world might be saved through him. 1 Timothy 1.15 tells us that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So here, Paul says that the grace of God, Christ, appeared to bring salvation to all people. All. What does that word mean? Spent a lot of time on this. Drum roll, please. It means all. But all always has a context. And in this passage, that context is the 10 verses that we just sort of danced across, verses 1 through 10. Paul has just given instructions to all kinds of people. Older men, younger men, older women, younger women, slaves, to Titus. He has given instructions to all kinds of people without distinction. And also, the Lord sends his son Salvation to older men, to younger men, to older women, to younger women, without distinction. Not without exception, but to without distinction. There is no specific rank or merit required to qualify one for salvation. Only a full trust in the finished work of the one who came. Now before we move on, we want to spend just a little bit of time on the phrase bringing salvation. It's actually an adjective in the original language, modifying the word grace. So it could be rendered, the salvation-bringing grace of God appeared. Um, and the point here is simple, but we can forget it, that Christ, that God, is the actor here in salvation. God is the one who has brought salvation to us. That is, salvation is of the Lord from Psalm 3.8. All things belong to the Lord. They are from Him and through Him and to Him. Romans 11.36. And the great multitude of Revelation 7.10 declare salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So, if you are here convinced that God could never save you, that you could never measure up. You've blown it too many times. Repent of that thinking that you could ever earn the favor of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. Call on Him to save you by His grace alone and in Christ alone. And if you're here feeling really swelled that the Lord, uh, about your own performance, that you're, you're pretty convinced that God's really thrilled that you're on his team. Um, he's thankful to have you. You can repent of that thinking as well, that you have somehow earned his favor, that you have gained his smile, because salvation is of the Lord. And cry out to him and ask him to forgive you of your pride. Okay, so that's verse 11, a saving grace. And that would be enough but God's grace is a sanctifying grace as well, as we'll see in verse 12. 
So Titus 2.12, still connected to verse 11, God's grace has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. The operative word here is training, instructing, teaching. Uh, the word indicates an ongoing and regular transfer of information, instruction, and leading. And an, and an aspect of the word implies here that this content of this training, it would be otherwise unknown, otherwise unreachable. Uh, it would, someone without the training, whatever the training would be, is simply lost or ill-equipped for the intended purposes. A quick example, I recently flew for work, and as I was sitting in the back of an Airbus 321, I was thinking about two pilots up in front and had the training that they had gone through. And I assume that had they not gone through the training, though most men would believe they could take off and land a plane without training, I don't think that it's true. We would have had a, a far different outcome. It's just a simple picture of the requirement, even for something like flying a plane, where training is required, and how much more important that we be trained in the things of the Lord. This is where passages like Proverbs 3, 5 to 7 intersect with this understanding that we are called to trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding. You see, your understanding, my understanding by itself is untrustworthy. It is insufficient. Our wisdom is not enough to guide us out of evil or to know how to please the Lord. We are to not be wise in our own eyes. It is only the wisdom from God that is sufficient to see us through. So we, brothers and sisters, require not only saving, but training. Now as for the subject matter and purpose of this training, Paul presents it in two different ways. Notice first the negative prohibitions and then the positive affirmations. So to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and then to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. A simple way to see this sanctifying grace is that it trains us to say no to some things and yes to others. But the no here is a, about as strong of a word of no. It's not a, a polite southern thank you, no thank you, ma'am. <laughs> this is a, a hard no denying, repudiating, even hating the very idea of what is being said no to. And as for the content itself, I want you to see the pairs. There are two pairs here set up for us in contrast. First, Paul calls for the renunciation of ungodliness and for the living of godly lives. The picture in your head here uh, for this of being godly or ungodly you should think of one of orientation or direction. Which, which way am I heading? Another word to, that's, that will be helpful to think of here is to being Godward. That is, a life that is focused and heading towards God versus one that's self-focused, sin-focused, worldly-focused, or others. So a few diagnostic questions to tease out uh, this first pair. When trouble comes in your life, I'm talking about real trouble, not, you know, my coffee was too cold or my hair doesn't look right. Um, where do you turn first? 
What is your very first instinct? Who is the one you reach out to first when real trouble comes? Or when you're tempted, do you draw near to the throne of grace uh, to find mercy and grace in and help in time of need from Hebrews 4? Or do you try to battle temptation in your own strength? Or when trouble comes, which picture would seem more like your life? Are you heading towards Jesus in trouble or are you turned away and heading away, hiding out? Are you coming, running like the prodigal son? Or are you like the older son, walking out back out into the field embittered? The godly life that God's grace trains us toward is one where the Heavenly Father is our North Star, our closest ally, our refuge in the storm. He is the one from whom and toward whom and with whom all of our life is oriented and aligned. So that's that first pair, renouncing ungodliness and living a godly life. The second pair speaks of renouncing worldly passions versus a living a life that is self-controlled and upright. Here, we're speaking of the force, the engine. What's driving your life? What's under the hood? A helpful parallel here is 1 Peter 4, 1 and 2. Let me just read that for us. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And the same way of thinking that Peter is speaking of here, you have to, I commend to you 1 Peter 2 and 3 to go see what that means. But it is a way that is selfless and dependent upon the Heavenly Father. So back into 1 Peter 4. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. As Peter writes of arming ourselves with this way of thinking, so Paul describes God's grace training us in this way of thinking, this way of governing our lives, not according to godless passions, but according to self-controlled and upright thinking. And the idea here of upright and self-controlled thinking is one that's proper, sober, careful, thoughtful, restrained, not of our own will and strength, but trained to think God's thoughts after him. Again, some diagnostic questions for you to chew on. When you're in a conflict, are you more concerned about a godly outcome and reconciliation or winning? Or better, are you able to walk in the other person's shoes? Or better yet, sort of walk in the counsel of God as you think through resolving a conflict? Second, when you have extra time on your hands, where does your mind go? You have nothing else to do with your brain. What's driving your mind and the thought life in your life? Are you primarily thinking about things of the Lord or things that are self-serving? Or worse yet, your mind going places where it just ought never go. And third, uh, for young men in the room, and maybe young women, I say maybe only because I spend more time counseling young men than young women. Here's this scenario. I ask the question, why do you want to marry her? And I hear the response, because she makes me feel so good. 
Now that sounds sweet, doesn't it? But what's at the core of that? Selfishness. It is. That's the engine that's, that's driving that response. Um, now, that's, by the way, not counsel to go and seek to marry someone who makes you feel really bad. <laughs> but dating counsel is another day. I can come back for that. <laughs> but back on point here, Paul's good news is that this same grace that appeared bringing salvation is the grace that trains us, instructs us, and leads us in these matters, provides us all that we need for life and godliness. That is the sanctifying grace of our Lord. Okay. Now, God's grace is a saving grace, a sanctifying grace, but also a securing grace. And so continue with me in verses 13 and 14. Waiting, I'm picking up in verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, in verse 12, the fruit of our training is being worked out right now, how we live in this present age. And now verse 13 reminds us that there is also a future age that we're looking forward to. Verse 11, the grace of God having appeared. Verse 13, the glory of our great God and Savior will be appearing. In his incarnation, Jesus condescended and, and lived in humility beyond compare. But when he returns, the Lord Jesus will come with a glory that is incomparable, beyond description, and all who are his eagerly await that day. So Paul ends this little section with a compact reminder of Jesus' work, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So to redeem and to purify. Now, if you've been tracking through this text, I hope you see it already. What was verse 11 about? Bringing salvation. That sounds a little like redeeming. Verse 12, training us. That's a little like being purified. Do you see the comparison? To save and to train, to redeem and to purify. So to redeem uh, was a marketplace term, meaning to buy back a slave uh, from a debt that they could not pay. This particular word used here has specific uh, connotation towards ransom and rescue. And so just like men and women who were slaves owed a debt they couldn't pay, uh, we owed a debt of sin that we couldn't pay in a thousand lifetimes. And Jesus paid it all, redeeming his own from all lawlessness. It's a precious and concise picture of the grace of God appearing and bringing salvation to all people. Purify is a, a process. Now, are God's people holy positionally? Absolutely. Immediately and holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy, holy. Practically, though, we work this out through our lives as a process of being refined, of, of having the dross burned 
off of our lives, of useless things going away and the pure remaining. Now, verse 14, however, is far more than just a reiteration of verses 11 and 12. And I want you to see why this third point is that God's grace is a securing grace. And it's because this work of Jesus is a lot more than just a job. It's a lot more than just a rescue mission. Jesus is playing for keeps. I want you to see the personal pronouns in here because this is very personal for Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus is working salvation for keeps. He gave himself. He's purifying a people for himself, a people for his own possession, a zealous people eager for good works done in his name and for his glory. This people for his own possession is a theme we already know. In fact, we started the service with that, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But that theme has been woven through scriptures for a millennia, millennium and a half before this. Uh, we don't have time for it, but Exodus 19, Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy 14, Deuteronomy 26, Psalm 135, Ezekiel 36 that we heard earlier, Malachi 3, just to name a few. The Lord has been jealous to vindicate his own name through the keeping of his chosen people as a treasured possession. This is not new, but it is still as glorious today as the day that God first stated it. And what God possesses is secure in his arms. And a people secured by grace are freed up to be zealous for the good works that have been set beforehand that you would walk in them. Well, what rich truths we have in just these four little verses. God's grace is a saving grace, bringing salvation to all people. His grace is a sanctifying grace, training us to live godly lives. His grace is a securing grace that Christ gave himself to redeem us and to purify us for himself. If you're in Christ, I pray that you can rejoice in these truths. These are a balm in times of trouble. If you are the Lord's, if he's saved you and is growing you, he will keep you to the very end, come what may. He has not saved you only to leave you on your own to figure the rest of it out. Our Savior is closer than a brother and has given us his very word, which is sufficient for everything in our lives. Are you facing trouble, doubt, conflict, even persecution or pain? Take heart and comfort in the grace of God and trust in the Lord through your trouble. As Spurgeon once wrote, it's folly to think that the Lord provides grace for every trouble but the one that you are in today. And if you're here and absolutely none of this makes sense, you know that you've never experienced God's grace. You know that your life is devoid of self-control, uprightness, or godliness. 
you know that you have not been redeemed by Jesus. Cry out to him. Cry out to him. Turn to him. Put your trust in the finished work of Jesus' life and death and resurrection for your sins and ask the Father to be merciful and to save you. And if you have questions, I am sure that Keith and Matt and many others here would love to talk with you about this. God's grace is truly amazing. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your grace on display in Christ. How he has brought salvation for all kinds of people everywhere. Thank you as well that your same grace that saves also sanctifies, teaching us and guiding us in lives that are aimed toward you with minds that are governed by you, by your word, by your spirit. And thank you that you are purifying a people for your own possession, that we are yours by your rich and glorious grace. In Christ's name we pray, amen.